Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last time we looked at the first 13 verses in Acts chapter 2, which was uh, Pentecost. And that amazing moment where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120 and they testified to the mighty works of God. But they did it in languages that they themselves had never even learned. That language gift was a sign of the presence of the Spirit. So now we're looking at the immediate aftermath of that Pentecost event. We're we're looking at the way specifically that the people who witnessed it reacted to it and what those reactions can tell us about the kingdom. It's interesting, if you look uh, right before our text, so our text starts in verse 14, but if you just refresh your memory of what we looked at last time, Luke does give us a sense of the reactions in verses uh, 12 and 13 to this, this gift of language. He says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Those are the two reactions. Some react to what has taken place here, and they're amazed, and they're perplexed, and it it drives them to ask, what is the meaning of this thing that we've just witnessed, whereas others begin to mock what they've witnessed and accuse the 120 of being drunk. Peter's going to address both of those objections in the text that we have this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. This is beginning in verse 14, and we'll read through to verse 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the beginning of Peter's great Pentecost sermon. And over the course of the next few Sundays, we'll be looking at different parts of that sermon in detail. But here at the introduction, Peter addresses the reactions of that audience at Pentecost, and he also lays a foundation for the gospel that he's going to proclaim. Now, when Luke records the event, Luke gives us first the reaction of those who are perplexed and amazed, and then he adds that not everyone feels that way. Some are mocking. Peter, when he begins, though, he reverses his response, so he takes on the mockers first. 
So let's think about the answer that Peter gives to those who respond with ridicule. It's interesting to note that these two reactions to what happened at Pentecost seem to be connected to whether people understood what they heard or not. Some people will have heard the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own language, in their mother tongue, and they were amazed by this. They were also confused because the people speaking those works were uneducated. They were Galilean fishermen. They weren't scholars. How could it be that they had mastered so many of these languages and were able to proclaim the gospel in those languages? It was a head-scratcher. It was perplexing. What did it mean? What did it signify? But there were others who mocked, and, and the nature of the mocking suggests that they had not understood what was being proclaimed, because they wrote it off as as the babblings of drunks, where one person heard this unfamiliar sound and recognized it as, as speech in their language. Others, what they heard was confusion. What they heard was nonsense. It was gibberish. That's implied by the fact that they associate what they've witnessed with drunkenness, right? You wouldn't uh, walk into a classroom and have someone speaking Spanish. Uh, even if you don't speak Spanish, you wouldn't say, oh, I think that person must be drunk, right? You would recognize that there was a pattern to the sound of those words, even if you didn't understand the meaning of them. But when it's all gibberish, when it just seems like, like, like random babbling, then it's easy to make that connection that it's just nonsense, that it's just drunkenness. So the way people respond to the gospel even on Pentecost, seems to be influenced by what they hear, whether or not they hear the truth of what's being spoken, whether or not they are deaf to it. Now, Peter gives a brief refutation of the charge. He says, no, they're not drunk, as you suppose, because it's just the third hour of the day. Like, it's, it's 9 a.m. in the morning, so they're not drunk. Um, we live in looser times, than they did in Pentecost. Our lives are a little less structured than theirs were, and expectations uh, now are a little less predictable than they were then. So that uh, I would say if you accuse me of drunkenness and my defense was, hey, it's only nine in the morning, that's a plausible defense these days because it's rare that you might find someone intoxicated that early, but it's not inconceivable that I could have just been out all night and, and still am under the effects of it, right? But they lived in a more restrictive situation than we do. And so there's actually more force to Peter's refutation than you might appreciate at first. Uh, on the Sabbath day, on festive days like this, uh, the way that their days were structured and the way that their meals were structured was such that they wouldn't actually have had their meal yet. Like they would have eaten around noontime and, and they drank wine along with their meals. So it was very, very unlikely, close to inconceivable, that drunkenness would be an explanation for what's taking place here. So when Peter refutes this charge in passing in this way, it's a stronger case that he's making than we may realize. You might think of it this way. He's not just saying, uh, of course, they're not drunk, but, but he's also kind of pointing out, it's, it's silly of you to suggest that. Like, you should know better than to make such an accusation. To say such a thing, even as ridicule, even mocking, suggests that you really don't understand the nature of the people that you're accusing, and you really don't understand 
the nature of the practice of pious Jews. You should know better than that. This mockery has no basis in reality. It's, it's not a good explanation for what you've just witnessed. That's how Peter responds to the ridicule. There's an interesting thing to note, though, as the book of Acts progresses, this is only the beginning. These kinds of objections to what the Spirit is doing are, are, are just the bare threshold. People reacting with mockery, reacting with ridicule, that's just the start. That's an arc that ramps up dramatically as the book of Acts progresses. Very quickly, as the gospel spreads, we go from ridicule and mocking in Acts 2 to questioning and threats in Acts 4, where the authorities are trying to intimidate the apostles into silence. When that doesn't work in Acts 5, just a chapter later, you see imprisonment. And when imprisonment doesn't seem to quell them, they're beaten for what they testify to. That arc of rejection culminates finally in Acts chapter 7 with the public murder of the deacon Stephen. So from ridicule, in seven chapters we get to murder. That's how extreme the reaction to the spread of the gospel is. That's how profound the hostility to the mighty works of God truly is among the people who reject it. So there's an increasing hostility to the gospel that runs side by side with its growth, with, with its spread. There's a miracle of unity that takes place at Pentecost. Right? There's that, that momentary glimpse of the reversal of Babel, but at that same time, even with that spirit of unity pervasive, there's also a division. Right? There's also a cleft, not between peoples, not between ethnic groups, but between belief and unbelief. Ethnic groups are reconciled at Pentecost. We get a glimpse of what the book of Revelation means when it speaks of every kindred, every nation, every tribe called to be the people of God. But at the same time, as that unity is proclaimed, we also see this tragic division. As the gospel unites Jew and Gentile in Christ, we still divide ourselves from him through unbelief, through hostility. Hostility that sometimes expresses itself as just mockery, but sometimes as something much worse than that, something much more extreme than that. So as we consider the expanding boundaries of the kingdom, we also have to see that the kingdom is always and everywhere opposed. Wherever it goes, there is strife, there is division. As the claims of the gospel spread, which are truth claims, a division, a break takes place between those who believe and those who reject those claims. And Peter speaks to it here. This ridicule, this accusation, this, this false construal of what the gospel says, it's not true. And you ought to know better. But he only addresses that briefly. Most of what he says is addressed to the other reaction, the reaction of of awe and, and wonder and, and, and puzzlement, not understanding exactly the significance of what's taking place. He addresses those who respond with wonder, and he does it by quoting the Old Testament to them. He goes back to the book of Joel, chapter 2 of Joel, and quotes a prophecy to them, and he says, this is what's happening. 
This is what's happening. In verse 16, he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So it's not that. It's not the drunkenness. That's not what you've witnessed. What you've witnessed is this. It's what Joel said. It's what Joel prophesied. And then he quotes this prophecy of Joel's. And the prophecy, the fact that he's quoting it at all, combined with the content, it's very interesting. It suggests certain things about the nature of the kingdom. Here at the outset of this sermon, this very first sermon in the book of Acts, we're learning some things about the kind of kingdom that Christ has established that are important to reflect on. So here's the prophecy. He quotes this from Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So specifically, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what's been promised. You've just seen the results of that pouring out. So this is what Joel was talking about. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And Joel continues, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter connects the events of Pentecost to those words from Joel. That's in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. Here's what's striking about that. When he connects Pentecost to that prophecy, what's interesting is that prophecy, if you go back to the book of Job and you start looking at it, what Job is talking about is the day of the Lord to come, this coming day of judgment, but he's also talking about restoration. If you look at the prophecies surrounding this prophecy, this is a chain of prophecies where Joel is looking forward in the future and he is predicting the restoration of God's people. He is predicting the restoration of Israel. A prophecy that is addressing the future day when Israel will be restored. Peter grabs that and says, this is what you're seeing before your very eyes. That Old Testament prophecy of the restoration of Israel, it is happening right now. What's interesting is Joel is not the only Old Testament prophet who prophesies about a coming day when the Spirit will be poured out. Um, there's a number of these passages, Isaiah 32.15, Isaiah 44.3, Ezekiel 36.27, 37.14, 39.29, and again in Zechariah 12.10. And what they all have in common if you go back and look at the prophecies where the, the pouring out of the Spirit is spoken of, what they have in common is this idea that it happens in a time of restoration. It happens at a time when the fortunes of Israel are being restored, when the kingdom of Israel is being built back up again. These are prophets speaking in a time when the kingdom has been destroyed. It's been conquered. The people have been brought into captivity, but they see a day coming when the kingdom will be restored. And Peter says, this is the day. This is what you see happening before you. The fact that he quotes a prophecy like this and connects it to Pentecost tells us that the kingdom is here. 
that the hopes and the expectations that had been raised by those Old Testament prophets, Peter is saying they are now being fulfilled. They're being answered. Those promises connect to what's happening before your very eyes. If you're looking for the restoration of the kingdom, look right here, Peter says. It is happening before your very eyes. If these prophecies are coming true, then this is the kingdom. Then this is the kingdom. That's one implication. Just the very fact that he's applying this kind of a prophecy that we know that the kingdom whose restoration was being restored is present on that day at Pentecost. Remember in Acts 1, before the ascension, the way that Luke tells that ascension story, the question that's being asked by the disciples, by the apostles, that inner circle is, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? That is the, the question at the beginning of the book of Acts. And I would suggest to you that the narrative of Acts is the answer to that question. Acts is the story of the restoration of that kingdom. At the very least, the beginning, the foundation of that restoration of the kingdom. And what that means is what they were asking in chapter 1 is already being answered here in chapter 2, and Peter sees it that way. He recognizes that that's what God is doing. The hope for the restoration of Israel is not on hold, in other words. Israel isn't waiting. Israel hasn't been shoved off to the side during some parenthetical period during which God will work with other people instead. No, what's happening is um, a continuation, a continuation of what God was doing before. So when Joel prophesies in verses 17 and 18 about the pouring out of the Spirit on the people who will prophesy and this sort of indiscriminate pouring out. These are things Peter is saying are happening at Pentecost. The the language gift is a consequence of what is happening. It's not the only example of, of the fulfillment of this. Other things are going on, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. But this is, is the beginning of that fulfillment of those words in verses 17 and 18. Now, it's interesting to note that although the the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, it's not as if the Spirit wasn't active prior to that. You may have wondered, for example, we saw at the end of chapter 1 of Acts, a new apostle is chosen. And you're probably aware that, that some people look at that and they say to themselves, that was an incorrect thing to have done because uh, the theory goes that that Paul would become the 12th of the 12 apostles had they waited, like God intended to replace Judas with Paul, but instead those impetuous apostles led by Peter, who is the king of impetuosity, decided to get ahead of God's plan, and, and they humanly replaced Judas with Matthias because they didn't yet have the spirit and they should have waited. Problem with the theory, though, that if you go back to John chapter 20, you find that before the ascension, Jesus breathed on the apostles and told them, receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them a kind of power from the Spirit even before this outpouring that takes place at Pentecost. There are other problems with that theory as well. Paul himself referred to the 12 as the 12 and did not include himself as one of them, although he did include himself as an apostle. But you get the idea. What's significant here is 
is not that the apostles received the Spirit from Christ. It is that the Spirit was poured out on everybody, male and female, young and old, without regard to class. If you were a wealthy person with a lot of servants in your household and you believed you received the Holy Spirit, and so did your servants equally. God was no respecter of persons. This pouring out of the Spirit generally that resulted in all of these people testifying, prophesying, proclaiming the mighty works of God, that was the event that Joel has prophesied, and that was the thing that they had seen. You look at the rest of Joel's prophecy, verses 19 and 20. There's some language there that, that for the interpreter, presents more difficulty. Some of those events, I think you can look back and say, were fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, uh, the sun turning black, for example. And I think uh, that interpretation is reinforced by Peter's words a little bit later in Acts 2.22, when he says, in the past tense, that Jesus was attested by mighty works, wonders, and signs. And yet, there are some things in Joel's prophecy that clearly Peter sees as not yet fulfilled. Joel refers to a coming day of the Lord, a day of judgment. And Peter, in Peter's epistles, also refers to that day of the Lord in the future tense. As with many prophecies, what you're seeing here is a little bit of already and not yet. The way to think about this is not that, that Peter is saying everything that Joel said is being fulfilled right now. He's not saying Joel's prophecy was fulfilled by what you just saw. What he's saying is something more like this. Because of what you just saw, you can know that Joel's prophecy has been and is being and will be fulfilled. It is an ongoing work of fulfillment. Another implication of this prophecy, not only is the kingdom here, but but this is a continuing kingdom. This is a continuing kingdom. If the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about Pentecost then the kingdom of God, the visible church, is not a new establishment. It's not a a, a new institution that God is bringing about. It is a continuation of what went before. It builds on top of what went before. It is tied to what, what went before. There is continuity, in other words. First of all, perhaps most obviously, there's a continuity in Scripture. We've spoken about this before, but I think it bears repeating Because so many of us have the idea that there's this hard line of division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that what's really relevant to us as Christians is the New Testament. The Old Testament is just full of all these dusty stories that are hard to understand, and and honestly, it's hard sometimes to even know if it's the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the New Testament's all about love, the Old Testament seems like it's all about wrath, and so it'd be better just to not think too much about that, we tell ourselves. But the Scripture of the New Testament authors is the Old Testament. The evidence that they present of God's character and God's deeds and God's promises is all Old Testament evidence. There is continuity. There's connectedness to Scripture. All of it is God-breathed. All of it holds together, which means none of it is irrelevant to our concerns. There is a relationship between Old and New Testament and continuity. You might think of it this way as promise and fulfillment. That's the difference. That's the difference. I'm not saying everything's the same. Clearly, some things new are revealed in the New Testament, hence the name. 
but you can't understand them without the old. You need the promise to appreciate the fulfillments. That's what you see happening in this citation of Joel's prophecy. There's a deeper continuity, though, that that suggests, and it is a continuity in the plan of salvation. A continuity in the plan of salvation. To put it another way, Israel is the church. Israel is the church. As strange as that may sound to you, if the promises that were made to and about Israel are being fulfilled in this thing we call the church, then we cannot separate the church from Israel or Israel from the church. Just because in the New Testament, the, the, the boundaries of God's chosen people have expanded radically doesn't make them a different people from the ones who went before. It doesn't mean that God has two plans of salvation for the old Israel and the new. Instead, there is continuity, a continuity that we express in this term, the covenant of grace. When you look at all of the covenants that God makes with his people, you can understand them all as being sort of contained and subsumed within this larger covenant of grace, this determination, this promise of God to save and that salvation, although the, the content of it changes, right? over time, as God reveals himself, we understand better who it is we're trusting in. That trust doesn't change. Again, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The heroes of faith, the New Testament heroes of faith, who are cited as examples are all Old Testament figures in the book of Hebrews. Salvation by grace through faith is not new. It's how Abraham was saved. It's how Moses was saved. It's how anyone who was ever saved, never will be saved, is saved. It is the same plan of salvation. There is continuity in this kingdom. When you think about Joel's prophecy, though, there's, there's a third thing, and, and I would argue maybe the most important thing for us to appreciate. It's not just that the whole Bible holds together, that the plan of salvation holds together. It's not just that the kingdom is inaugurated now. It's also something about the nature of the kingdom, the, the kind of kingdom that this is. This is a kingdom of fulfillment. It's a kingdom of fulfillment. As I said before, not every jot and tittle, not every detail of Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. And if you go back and look at the other Old Testament prophecies having to do with the pouring out of the Spirit, you'll find that similar mixture where the pouring out of the Spirit is associated with a restoration of all things that, that we would recognize as a picture of the new creation. Like we would recognize as a reality that is still to come when Jesus comes again. So here's what's interesting, and it's one of the things that makes interpreting prophecy a little tricky, is that in the same prophecy, in the same few verses, you can scan a few lines, and the events that are prophesied could be separated by thousands of years. It's possible for Jesus in Matthew 24, for example, speaking in that prophetic vein, to refer to events that are happening in his lifetime or about to happen very shortly, and in the next breath, to speak about things that will happen at the end of time on the last day, that final judgment. Prophetic speech like that compresses time so that it touches on near futures and, and distant ones and makes the interpretation a little bit tricky. But you know what makes interpreting prophecy easier? When somebody like Peter comes along and says, 
this is the fulfillment. When someone like Paul comes along and cites an Old Testament prophecy and says, this is what it means, this is that prophecy coming true, then you can have confidence that what you're reading is not some subtle theory, it's not some human speculation, it is the inspired word of God telling you how Scripture reads Scripture. We can have confidence that what Peter says is true, that Joel's words are being fulfilled in the actions there. Some of the things in Joel's words have already happened, Peter is saying. Some of them are still for the future. They are not yet here. But this kingdom, he signals, will be a kingdom of fulfillment. The the character of the kingdom of God, the character of the church, it is a kingdom of fulfillment. This is an age of fulfillment where the promise of salvation is coming true where God is keeping the commitments that he has made over millennia to his people. That is the kind of kingdom this is. And all the promises that God has made will be kept at the culmination of this kingdom, of this era. When this kingdom comes to its fullness, we will see the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made, which is why Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, plays a little fast and loose with the words Joel actually spoke. If you go back and you look at Joel, you'll find something interesting. So this is Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28. Peter is quoting verse 28 through verse 32. And Joel begins this prophecy by saying, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's narrated a series of events, and he's just saying the thing that's going to happen after those things is this pouring out of the Spirit. But when Peter quotes the words, Peter says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares. Joel says, Here's what's going to happen next. It will come to pass this. Peter says, In the last days it will happen. And think about that. That's not the way we think about the last days. If this never happens, but if somebody walks up to you on the sidewalk and says, I'd like to have a conversation about the last days, you will assume that what they want to talk about is the end times. They want to tell you their theories about who the Antichrist is or something like that. Um, Sort of thing that's always happening when you're walking down the street. Good reason to drive. But um, that's not what Peter's talking about. When Peter talks about the last days, he's not talking about some future time way off in the distance, that you should just, you know, file this away because uh, 2,000, 2,500 years from now, this will become relevant. No, Peter thinks he's living in the last days. Now, some people say Peter thinks he's living in the last days because he doesn't realize, like, he expects Jesus to come back quickly, but Jesus disappoints him in that, and so Peter has to adjust his thinking a little bit, but that's not actually the case. And and here's something interesting. So the book of Acts refers to the, the return of Christ. But when the book of Acts presents the gospel, it focuses on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ without a lot of emphasis on the second coming, without a lot of emphasis on, on the far future. So when Peter talks about the last days, he doesn't mean Jesus' second coming, he just means now. It's just his way of saying now. What's happening now? These are the last days. 
Like, well, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? What he means is the, the last epoch of Revelation has been inaugurated. In coming to this age that we live in now, we have, have reached the, the final uh, epoch of Revelation where God has re- revealed himself fully. He has told us what he intends to tell us about this salvation. He has given us the spirit, and now we see plainly what before was only perceived in types and shadows. These are the last days in which we're living. There's a lot of them, admittedly. But the last days is a reference to this final epoch, this epoch of the kingdom. Not everything is fulfilled, but everything will be fulfilled as this kingdom comes into its fullness. Joel's final word is interesting, too, because verse 21, where Peter stops, is not where Joel stops. He continues a little bit, but Peter stops here, and I think he stops here intentionally for this very reason, that what he's focused on is not the far future. He's not focused on the end of the plan and how it all comes together. He stops in verse 21, I think, because in verse 21, the prophet Joel characterizes the, the ethic, the, the reality, the, the overarching theme of the kingdom. It's those words of, of great beauty that you read in verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is an announcement of the character of this kingdom. Those are the last days. That's the time we live in. We live in the time when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a coming cosmic judgment, just as there will be a cosmic restoration of creation. But those days are not yet. That has not happened yet. What is here now is this time of salvation, this time when the gospel is proclaimed without regard to who, without regard to ancestry, without regard to ethnicity, nation, background, without regard to deeds, personal history. None of that matters. The gospel is proclaimed, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, shall be saved. That's what this kingdom is all about. That final word that Peter gives to Joel is the springboard, then, that Peter will use to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the days in which everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Peter says. Then he goes on to tell you who that Lord is. What is the name of the Lord? It is Jesus Christ. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It shall come to pass, Joel says. And Peter says, it has come to pass. The Old Testament was part of that overarching covenant of grace. But during the time of the Old Testament, um, the covenant of grace was administered through the law. This was an era where the law had been given. And Paul says what the law does is shows us how far short we fall. The law shows us how dire our need is. The law reveals, yes, the holiness of God, which is wonderful, but at the same moment reveals the unholiness of us and also our inability to make up that difference 
to appease the wrath of God just by being good. Of course, plenty of people, in a misguided sense, attempted to be good by keeping the law. Paul says that was never the point of the law. The law was something you could not keep. The law, in a sense, multiplied the offense. The law made things worse by revealing to us just how bad we are, but we didn't stop. So during that era, though salvation was by grace, there was this law, this structure of law that was meant to bring us under condemnation. The New Testament is a different era in the covenant of grace, a dispensation of gospel brought about by Christ. You might think of it this way. The temple of old has become the church, and now the gospel is proclaimed to every nation, every tribe, every kindred without distinction. This is what has come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that everyone is significant. And it it rings in our ears a little bit differently than it would have at Pentecost, because what Peter is saying honestly, is something he doesn't yet fully understand. He's saying to what is a Jewish audience, although there were bound to be some Gentile converts in the mix, but he was saying to them, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, not just us, not just our people, salvation is no longer for us alone. Something maybe even a little bit more challenging than that, ethnically, we are not God's only people. God has chosen more than just us. There's something wider. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the epic that we live in, where Jew and Gentile alike are called to repent and believe, and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He compares himself that brazen serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness when the people were bitten by, by serpents and were afflicted. Right? Anyone who gazed upon that was healed. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life for whoever believes. For whoever believes. In the same chapter later, John the Baptist, when he's explaining Jesus to his followers, says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What the law revealed was the extent of our sin and the extent of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God upon sinners. But now the gospel answers with our hope, our hope, which is eternal life in Christ for whoever calls upon his name. There's a story that that I love to tell about the Constitutional Convention. When things broke up, uh, people were not as well informed about what was taking place in the late 1700s as they are now. No one was live tweeting the event. So as a result, there was a lot of interest in what had happened, but you could only find out once the conference had broken up. So as Ben Franklin was leaving on the streets, he was walking down, and people were calling to him, asking him questions, because he was a journalist after all. And one of the questions that is supposedly asked of Ben Franklin is, what kind of government do we have? And if you think about it, that's pretty extraordinary. These are people who had lived under a monarchy, and now their leaders have gotten together to create a new government, but the people don't know what sort of government it's going to be. 
Franklin famously replies, a republic, if you can keep it. Now, probably when people first started telling this quote, you emphasized the, the first half, a republic. It's a republic, and that would be a good thing to know in your civics class. But now I feel like we emphasize the if you can keep it part. Depending on how cynical you are, you might think, haha, you know, we certainly did not do that. Uh, we pretty much have a dim view of government. That if you can keep it, that's the rub, right? Because no system, no matter how good it is in theory, can survive corrupt implementation. So that a government, no matter what kind of government, is only as good as the people who actually do the work of government. The people who do the work. You can have a wonderful theoretical system that works terribly if you put corrupt people in charge of it. Maybe that's the reason why so many of us are so cynical of the claims of government to save us and transform our society, solve our problems. We know human nature just a little bit too well to believe in that. But when you imagine the crowd at Pentecost asking that question, what does this mean? What does this mean? Turning to Peter, demanding explanations. You might transpose the question and think about Peter as a kind of Ben Franklin. People have witnessed something, they don't understand it, they're turning to someone who can elucidate, who can explain what it is. And I would argue that what Peter is telling them is actually a similar kind of answer. He is telling them what kind of governments has been established for them, what sort of a kingdom this is going to be. What will this kingdom be like? Will it give us what we want? Will this be a kingdom where we are free? Will this be a kingdom where there is justice? Will this kingdom keep its word to us? Will it do what every other kind of kingdom has done, which is break its promises? The apostle announces a kingdom that is like no other. This will be a kingdom of fulfillment. This will be a kingdom that does what it says it's going to do. The promise of salvation has been made, and this government of Jesus Christ will fulfill it. Christ will build his kingdom by keeping the promise of salvation, but it is, it is the people that he claims that he will build this kingdom out of. We are the bricks in, in the, the edifice that he is building as a dwelling place for himself. A government is only as good as the one who does the work of government. And this government, its work is done by Christ himself, Christ the King. You can have confidence that the promises that he has made will come true. This kingdom will be a kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of restoration, a kingdom where what is broken is made whole, a kingdom of fulfillment. For those of us who respond to those words with ridicule, with rejection, and there's nothing left but a spiral of hostility that keeps us under our own sin, that keeps us trapped underneath the shadow of God's wrath. But those who respond in wonder, maybe even perplexity, for those, there is an answer. To call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship 
by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.